Amen. All right, the fourth chapter of Romans. We've turned another chapter, yet we're continuing the same similar thoughts. As we've mentioned often, the Word of God has chapter divisions. It has verse numbers. But oftentimes, much like the book of Romans, there are continuous thoughts. There are continuous principles and things being taught. So Paul is not turning the page on the subject in which he's been dealing with. We've been talking a lot about the reality of our justification. We've been dealing with what it is to be justified freely by the grace of God. We understand that all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And we also know that it is through the forbearance of God that we have any hope today. We looked last week at the reality of what Paul concluded with at the end of chapter number 3 with this thought there in verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Justification comes by faith without the deeds or the works of the law. With those same thoughts in mind, we enter into verse chapter number 4, looking at verse number 1. And Paul begins to give an example here, two familiar names that we're going to deal with over the next couple of weeks, but we'll deal with just one of them this morning. Look what it says in verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now just so I'll give you a little bit of a, a look towards next week. Look, just look at verse 6. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. The expression in verse 3 really sets the context what we're going to look at this morning. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Uh, notice that phrase, counted unto him for righteousness. It's the same thought that in verse number 6, whom God imputeth righteousness without works. This counting unto him for righteousness is the subject of imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. We've dealt with this even from the pulpit before. This is not the first time we've dealt with this imputed righteousness. But as we look at this this morning, uh, again, this is being taken with consideration of justification by faith. Uh, there is no such thing as imputed righteousness if I don't understand it in the context of being justified by faith, to be, to be declared without sin, to be declared as if I had never sinned. That justification we've talked about over the last few weeks. But remember, Paul is writing to Jews and Gentiles, and he's been writing to these, this mixed church, if you will, and he has dealt with the problems that the Gentiles in the church were having, and he's dealt with the problems that the Jews were having. So this is remarkable what he does. He uses two of the great heroes, the hero of the heroes of Hebrews. He uses Abraham and David, two men highly revered, highly regarded as great men of God. And he uses them as the example as to what righteousness and how righteousness really comes. Uh, this, is, this is like taking a hero of the faith and saying, your hero of the faith believed this. 
Your hero of the faith would, would subscribe to imputed righteousness, that there is no justification by works. He uses these two great heroes as an example as to what this imputed righteousness really is. Now, you'll notice that it says Abraham believed God. It was counted unto him for righteousness. Verse 1 talks about Abraham as our father. Uh, notice Paul is using the terminology our father. He's recognizing that he himself is from this line of Abraham. He would associate himself with Abraham. This is an example here of how imputed righteousness comes about. Now, in order to set the stage again so that we're on the right track here, let's understand, let me give you three things from chapter 3 that will help us understand this righteousness that is imputed. Number one, there is absolutely no justification for the Jew or the Gentile before God by the works of the law. Okay? There is absolutely no justification for Jew or Gentile before God by the works or the deeds of the law. Number two... There is the righteousness of Christ in which believers are completely justified and sanctified in the sight of God. And just as a side note, without our obedience. Okay, so in other words, righteousness of Christ in believers, they are completely justified and sanctified in the sight of God without obedience to the law. Okay, it's a little bit different than the works of the law. And then number three, this perfect righteousness not only justifies the sinner, but honors the law and the justice of God. In other words, this imputed righteousness we're going to talk about this morning justifies that sinner, but also honors the law, fulfills the law, and the justice of God, which must also be satisfied, the justice of God and the payment for sin. So now as Paul enters into this chapter, we look at these Truths, and we look at these two men, these two great men of God. Sadly, many of us grew up in an environment where Abraham and David were either just the subject of a song or they were the subject of a great heroic victory. We often think about David and we often, the first thing we think about is what? David and Goliath. We think about David's victory over that giant, and we think about how that story, that context has been taken now to this day to be used about how we might, quote-unquote, slay the giants in our life. It's been used as a means of just giving ourselves a better life, which that was never, that's not the intent of the story of David and Goliath at all. However, these two men, Abraham and David, to the Jew would have meant much more to them. They would not just have been the, the subject of a song or the subject of a story. These were two men of God who were highly revered and highly sought after and highly thought of. Now, today we're going to deal with Abraham. We're not going to even deal with David today. We'll deal with him next week. But we're going to look at how Paul uses the example of Abraham, not only in his justification, but how he uses him to demonstrate his imputed righteousness, that even Abraham... His salvation was based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, again, look at verse number one. It's Paul writes, and he, he writes a question here. He says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertained to the flesh, hath found? In layman's terms, it simply means, or in our modern vernacular, it just simply means, what did Abraham find he found on his own? What did his flesh find? 
In other words, what did he find out about God on his own? We might even say, uh, what, did God, what did Abraham find out about God in his own choice? Abraham here is referred to as father. Now, throughout the chapter and throughout the book of Romans, to Paul and even to the believers who've been grafted in, we understand, we're going to get to this later on in the book of Romans, Abraham represents, in a spiritual sense, father of all believers. Okay, so when we think about Abraham, we don't just think about him in the historical uh, heritage sense where we say, okay, I'm not, a, I'm not of a Jew, I'm not Abraham, Abraham's not my father. Abraham, our father, is a spiritual sense here, although Paul, it means a double meaning for him because he's a Jew. He, he could say, our father. But in the spiritual sense of what's happening here, this verse speaks of his relationship to the Jews. Okay, so Paul right now is, it's a spiritual sense, but he's, he's really honing in on their relationship, their heritage. Because remember, that was a big thing with them. If I'm of the seed of Abraham, I must automatically be of God. Remember, that was one of the, that was one of the objections. He's trying to show them that it's not their lineage. It's not the fact that, they, that he is their heritage father. So again, you kind of have to keep this in mind as we study this. Abraham sometimes points to us in a spiritual sense, but right here he's using it more in a heritage sense just to show the Jews here. But as pertained to the flesh, hath found. In other words, what blessings came? You know, Father Abraham, he's often referred to as Father Abraham. He's considered a faithful man. Why was Abraham faithful? Abraham, we look at him and we think, boy, Abraham is an amazing example, but who was Abraham before God found him? You study the life of Abraham and you find out Abraham did not come from a, a quote-unquote spiritual family. As a matter of fact, Abraham was brought out or called out of a, a very a wicked situation. So why did God make a covenant with Abraham? You've got to ask yourself the question, have you ever wondered why did God choose Abraham? Why did God say, in your seed... All nations will be blessed. Okay, it's important to understand that God had made a choice here. What did he, what did, but what did Abraham find regarding the flesh? In other words, what part did his own flesh play in all of this? Was it his circumcision? No, it wasn't. Did God choose Abraham because he was circumcised? Did he choose Abraham because he kept the law? Absolutely not. The point here is, is what Abraham is being compared to by Paul, is did Abraham find his righteousness or his salvation by what he did? In other words, did his flesh produce faith? And we know, folks, it couldn't have. And we know biblically it's impossible for man to produce something in him that he does not have. I can't produce faith. Faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That's why we know by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God. What's the gift of God? Faith is the gift of God. So his faith didn't come because he was, just because he was a Jew. It didn't come because he was uh, circumcised. It didn't because he kept the law. There's no answer given here. We don't see like an emphatic no. Now, I wrote that in my Bible, but that's not inspired. <laughs> What I write in my Bible is not inspired. We all know that, right? Right? <laughs> that's, see, sometimes I ask for crowd. That's an important aspect there because we need to know that there is no more. The inspired word of God is complete, right? So we don't need to add more to it. 
my notes aren't inspired notes. So if you ask for my notes, they're not inspired. Okay, your Bible's probably your Bible is much more valuable than my notes are. So, but the answer is no, because here's how we know this, because Paul now goes down the line and he says, for here's what it really was. Look at verse number two. For if, I've got the word if circled in my Bible, for if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. In other words, if Abraham were justified by his works or justified by his lineage, if he was justified by his circumcision, if he was justified by his keeping the law, whether it was moral or ceremonial law, then this would be exactly contrary to everything Paul just taught in, verse, in chapter number three. In other words, if Abraham was justified by any of those things, then everything Paul, everything he just said, that would have been a waste of my time. But more importantly, here's what he, here's what he says. If Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. Or in other words, if Abraham could claim he was justified by his works, he would have something to boast in. Right? He would be able to say, look what I've done. Folks, we've been learning this for months now, years now. We've been trying to learn this, that it's not about what you and I have done. Those songs this morning were chosen with that particular thing in mind. Not in me. Nothing that I can do. That's what makes salvation so glorious. It is of God or it's no salvation at all. So he would have something in which he could say, look what I've accomplished. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses the terminology, but not before God. In other words, Abraham could glory. He could boast. But not before God means this, that it would not be approved by God. God would not say, I accept that. Folks, man can glory in his salvation. He can glory in his righteousness. He can glory in what he's done, what he's going to do. But it, it doesn't mean that God's pleased or even God accepts it. Right? So all we're concerned about is that God accepts it. And that's why salvation is not about God. Will you accept my way of salvation? It is about God is salvation. Christ is salvation. He is the finished, completed author and finisher of our faith. Why? Why can Abraham boast in nothing? Because underneath everything, underneath all of who Abraham is, this highly regarded, highly thought of hero of the faith, lies a sinner with wicked thoughts, with wicked deeds, with wicked motives, and wicked intentions. Therein lies why we cannot be the author of our own righteousness. Because even our best, Isaiah 64 says, even our best righteousness is still infiltrated with sin. These are truths man does not like to accept because it's not popular. Man wants to be told he's good. Man wants to be told, I am, I, can, I, am, I am the picture of holiness. The reality is, is there was nothing in Abraham that made God say, I'm choosing you, Abraham. God chose Abraham based upon his own covenant of grace that had been established long before you and I were ever even thought of. Your salvation was intended long before you were even born. This is not something that happened as a result of God reacting to you. Okay? God didn't react to you. God doesn't react. That's why he's sovereign. He's ordained all things. He doesn't react. He's, he already knows it. Abraham, this wasn't something about Abraham, but he said, Abraham, I'd like for you to go. Would you consider? Would you go talk to your wife and see when he came to, her, came to them? No. Abraham went 
Yet, Paul wants us to understand for sure that if this were the case, that if Abraham could have been justified by his works, this would be inappropriate and it would not be acceptable to God. Before God, Abraham, we don't find Abraham, and, and again, I'm not going to say ever because I'm not, I don't know every single verse, every single chapter of the Bible, and I don't claim to know them all, but I don't believe there's a place where you find Abraham actually glorying in himself. Now, I know Abraham had some times where he stumbled. I know if you look at the life of Abraham and Sarah, some of the things that they thought up, <laughs> some of the schemes that they came up to outrun God because they didn't think God was acting. Remember, God had promised Abraham a son, and he and his wife got the idea that we're just going to go ahead and set God's plan into motion, and we know how that, re we know how that ended. Abraham was still filled with failings. He was still a man that still had sin. So we know he couldn't have been justified by these works. But again, I don't think there's a time when we find Abraham saying, I ought to be saved because of what I've done. Before God, who is the righteous judge, he was declared justified by faith. Now, there is the sense of belief here. Because notice what, it happens, what happens here in verse number 3. The Bible says, for what saith the Scripture? By the way, that's, that's what we ought to say about every single thing we endure in our life. What do you say? What does the Scripture say? Not what do you think? You know, even in our, even in our day and age today, well-meaning people ask one another. They ask preachers, what do you think? Well, you don't really want to know what I think. You want to know what the Scripture says. Okay, now hopefully what I think is according to what the Scripture says. If those two match up, that's okay. That's what Paul is saying. He's, when, he, when he lays this line in the sand, he's basically saying, listen, all of your tradition, all of your works, everything that you think is right, put it all aside and say, here's where we get the answer. What does the Bible say? Now he calls it Scripture because that's what it is. It's Scripture. You're, you're, the book you hold says Holy Bible. It's Scripture is what it is. Scripture are divine writings. They are writings that are penned by the hand of God himself. Inspiration, remember, that's why I ask you. There is no inspiration outside of God. So here's what he says. He's already denied that Abraham or any man is justified by works. Paul now tells this church, he says, I want to appeal to the Scripture alone. Folks, this is the foundation of our faith. That's why we call Wednesday night service foundation of faith. That's why we're studying what we're studying. We're studying what say at the scripture. We, we do that every time we have a service. What does the Bible say? Okay, what does the Bible say? And some of you have, have experienced this, that when the Bible confronts us, we can't argue with it. If a book confronts you, you have room to argue. If I confront you, you have room to argue. When the scripture confronts you, you really have no argument back. He says, let's look at the Scripture. What does the Scripture say? This is our foundation. This is the rule of what we do, what we believe. And it's the source of all information about God. It also gives us what the Bible says about salvation, when it talks about eternal life. It's everything that we need to know. What say at the Scripture? Here's, here's Paul's conclusion. Abraham believed God. Now, right there, people often say, see, Abraham believed God and he got it. If you take that verse, isolate it, shine a light on it, and don't go any further, I can see how you get that conclusion. Because now you're saying that belief is a work. 
You're saying belief is something that he could drum up in and of himself. The problem is, is Abraham, if you study his life, he was called to follow God before we would even consider him a quote-unquote believer. That's an interesting little tidbit about people often think Abraham made this decision to follow. There's much more to that story. So here's this rule of faith. And let's go, go ahead and turn back to Genesis 15 because Paul's not just quoting a random verse. He's actually quoting all the way back in Genesis. Now remember, the Apostle Paul, the, the Scriptures would have been what? It would have been mostly the Old Testament. There would have been some New Testament uh, fragments that have been new, some New Testament scrolls traveling around, but primarily the Scriptures were the Old Testament. Genesis 15 Look at verse number, let's look at verse number one. Let's just read the context here. Genesis 15, verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? Okay, now this is important, okay? The topic of what he's saying to God and what God's asking him to do. Now, this is not his original leave your family, leave your home. This is, this is later on, but look what he says. And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Now, and he believed in the Lord. That's Abraham. And watch this. And he, God, counted it to him for righteousness. So this imputed righteousness is in direct relation to belief. Okay? Imputed righteousness directly related to belief. Abraham believed God, and as a result of the belief, he counted it to him for righteousness. What is Abraham believing in? He's childless. He's believing in the promised son, right? Is that what the scripture says? This promised son that would come. Abraham was childless. He was unable to produce a child on his own, right? Abraham and Sarah, Sarah was barren. Okay, here's the reality. Unable to have a son. You're childless, barren. Abraham can't produce a son on his own. Now, he's going to try, right? That was, his whole, that was his whole scheme. That's where Hagar comes into the picture. God had already said, Abraham, your seed through me. Now, he says he believed God. We understand that God would fulfill his promise by his own power. What was ultimately Abraham resting in? He's resting in what? The promise. The promise of the seed. Abraham and Christ... And I, again, I'm not trying to imply anything. Abraham and Christ never saw each other in this life. Okay? Christ and Abraham didn't see each other in the streets of Jerusalem. Why? Because they lived in totally different generations. But who was Abraham believing? A promised seed, Isaac. In Isaac, we would have Christ would come out of that line. So eventually, what's Abraham believing in? That God will give me a son, a seed. Because he's told him late earlier, the father of many nations. Again, I, I, I'm probably butchering this. We're trying to cover way too much. But those of you that read your Bible, you understand what we're talking about here. But it was counted unto him for righteousness. 
Now, who can count what's righteous? The righteous judge. Only a righteous judge can declare what's righteous. So God is declaring through Abraham's belief that this is righteousness. It was counted unto him. What has to be discounted to make a man righteous? His sin has to be discounted. See, because if I just look at man, then I'm only going to one conclusion. That man, that woman can't be righteous because their sin is there. It's impossible for me to count something righteous if all I see is their sin. So here's the reality. Not only is imputed righteousness the discounting of something, but it is the imputing or counting of something else. In Christ, sin is put away. And instead of seeing sin, now we see the righteousness of Christ, belief. What was ju- he, Abraham was justified solely through his faith in the promise, not in his works. There was nothing Abraham could do that would merit anything, his circumcision. By the way, circumcision didn't even come till later. So it couldn't have been his circumcision. It wasn't even a given, a given commandment in Abraham's day. People miss that. Abraham could not have possibly even claimed his circumcision because God had not even given that yet. But folks, even faith, and this is, where, this is what trips a lot of people up, even faith itself was not Abraham's righteousness because we know in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 20, that entire story tells us that Abraham had an imperfect faith. He had a faith that relied on himself. He had a faith. You remember when he, there was a famine in the land and he went down into Egypt. Remember even in his own faith when he, in, in fear, decided to say that Sarah was his sister, which was a half-truth. <laughs> Some of you will get that later. It was a half-truth. It was his half-sister. But he was doing that to protect himself. Why? Abraham's faith was weak. Self-produced faith is always weak. Self-produced faith will always result in failure. What does faith actually do? Faith receives the righteousness of Christ as a free gift from God. So when I look at my salvation this morning, all I look at it is that my salvation is a free gift of God. It's his righteousness being given to me from no merit, no work of my own. It wasn't my prayer. It wasn't my church attendance. It's not my giving. It's not my baptism. It's a a free gift of God. His righteousness was free to me. And I've told you folks many times, I have no idea. And I will never have any idea why in the world God would even think to give it to me. And you ought to think the same thing today. You ought to be saying, why in the world would God save me? That's what makes salvation so glorious. If I take credit for it, Suddenly, I'm like Abraham. I have something to boast in. Well, yeah, God should save me. Look at me. God should save me. Look at all the work I do for him. I'm God's choice of servant. No, you're not. What we are in God is what God has given to us. Now, believers, as Paul started off, believers are Abraham's children, and we share in the same righteousness by faith in Christ alone. So when we say we're of the seed of the line of Abraham, what are we saying? We all came and we're all in Christ the same way, through Christ. Abraham was through Christ. You say, how could he be in someone he never met? How could Christ had not even come yet? The reality is, is it was all about the promise. 
Abraham did not stagger. We'll look at this in just a moment. Actually, go back to our text in Romans 4 and look over at, um, look at verse number 18. He's still talking about Abraham. We'll talk about this in more, more depth when we get to it. But regarding Abraham, actually look at verse 17. It says, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him who believed, even God who quickeneth the dead. Oh, you ought to have that, you ought to have that underlined who quickeneth the dead. Have you thought of what that means? God makes something that's dead alive. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? And calleth those things which be not as, they, as though they were, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, I love this, but for us also to whom shall it be, it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Why do we call every single week people to repent and believe the gospel? Why do we do that every single service? Because that's the call that we're to do. God is the author. God is the eye, one that opens up the eyes. But we don't, we don't make the sermons. I'm not to look at someone and say, I can't preach the gospel to you. I can't preach the gospel to you. I preach the gospel to everyone, understanding that God is ultimately going to bring all of his children home. And I don't have to worry about it. You know, people say that that will kill your burden for souls. Actually, it ought to increase your burden for souls because what's happening is you're not taking any credit. I can't look at this person and say, I saved this person. I look at them and I say, God saved them. So a person walks an aisle and they say, preacher, I'm trusting Christ. I say, praise God. I don't ask him what he did. I simply say, man in his natural state is never going to trust God. He's not going to put all of his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, a man he's never met. That's what Abraham was doing. He was putting all of his hope and all of his faith in a promise. But God was ultimately the one that had called him and opened his eyes to these things. It was counted unto him for righteousness. Paul speaks of this justification. Now back in our text, Romans 4, For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted, that's imputed, unto him for righteousness. There's no doubt in what we saw in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed in the Lord. It was counted unto him for righteousness. But then notice the next thing. This counted unto him. Paul, as he speaks about this justification of the person, the person who hopes to be saved needs to be approved before God. And that's why Paul writes these words. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, the laborer or the worker who believes what he earns is getting him there is not of grace, but it's of debt. In other words... A laborer, what he earns, can never be called a gift. 
It can never be called mercy. It can never be called favor. If I go and work a job, the money that I receive is not a gift. It's an obligation. I worked for you. You pay me my wages. Okay? That's, that's how it works. Unless I say I'm going to work for free. Okay? Which that's becoming rarer <laughs> by the minute. Very few people will say I'll work for free. I'll work for the joy of work. Right? When's the last time you heard that? Doesn't happen much. But it can't be called grace if I work for it. Okay, this is what people misunderstand grace. Grace can't be grace if I have to work for it. And that's what he's saying here. Him that works or him that believes in his work, it cannot be reckoned. Now, the word reckoned is the same word that means imputation or to count. In other words, that's what he's saying. To him that works, who thinks, here's his reward. His reward is not based upon imputed grace or imputed righteousness. It's a debt. In other words, you make God owe you. Let me tell you something. And I'm, I'm not trying to be mean about this. God owes you and I nothing. <laughs> that's a, the, the idea that God owes me something. Um, that would mean that God is in debt to me. No, I'm, Paul even said, I'm a debtor. I am a debtor. God doesn't owe me anything. I'm in debt for what God has done for me. You know, my hope is, I, my desire ought to be, even though I know I can't do it, I wish I could pay my debt to God, to God but I can't do it. I mean, Paul used such strong, strong language. He said, I so badly want my people to understand this. I wish myself a curse from God. In other words, Paul was actually saying, I wish I could damn my own soul so that my fellow countrymen could be part of God. Now, he couldn't do that. Once you're in Christ, and if you're in Christ, you can't damn your own soul. That's what he's saying. I, w I, I, would, I wish myself accursed. But yet, Paul understood what the Scripture said. He understood that him that works, this laborer, if there's any work at all involved in it, regardless of how high the work is, it's all debt and it's not grace. The person who's hoping today to be saved by works, being saved by their obedience, being saved by their giving, is the same person who I guarantee you believes that their salvation is by merit. Okay? It's the same person. But then here's the, those grand theological words. I point this out all the time. But, okay, there it is. That's, it's therefore or in contrast. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth. And I like this phrase, not because it's a, a happy word. The ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. It isn't the believer, it isn't that the believer doesn't do good works. That, that, that argument falls apart when you read the book of James, when J Paul, uh, James is dealing with the idea of Abraham being justified by works, and it's a totally different situation. It doesn't mean that there's no works that follow. It simply means that it is not works that is earning a reward. You're not working to, to obtain salvation. We work now, just like we read in 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ constrains us. That means compels us. It means that as a believer, 
We work because we love Christ now. And that's an amazing thing because we know 1 John teaches us here in his love, not that we loved him, what, first, but that he loved us. There's a completely different difference here. It wasn't because one day you woke up and you loved God. It's because he loved you first. Everything I do now after being saved is a result of my love for Christ that was given to me by the gift of him loving me first. Now to me, I see nothing to boast in. I haven't said anything this morning that I'm aware of that would say, wow, I've got some works that I can count to my credit. I can say, boy, I have about five things that I can say, you know what, That's, that played a part in my salvation. I've seen nothing that, that says I can even begin thinking about that. So, the reward is not reckoned of grace, but of debt. You've worked hard for that reward, you've earned it. Can't talk about grace that way. Man gets what he earns, okay? What do you and I earn? We earned eternal damnation and we earned separation from Christ in a place that burns forever with everlasting fire with the weeping and gnashing of teeth called hell. That's what we've earned. All of you today, the wages that you and I have earned is the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You earned hell. Every single one of your works earns hell. That's, that's it. Nothing I bring. I don't even want God to use my works as part of my argument. In other words, I don't want to say to God, well, can you count this over here? You don't want him to count any of that. Because the minute he starts counting that, which he can't do, by the way, I'm giving you a hypothetical situation. God's never going to do that. You don't want him to count your good works. I guarantee you the Apostle Paul never wanted to say to the Lord, nor will he ever say to the Lord, Lord, I wish you would trade my imputed righteousness of your, God, of your free grace, and I want to exchange it for my good works. The Apostle Paul wouldn't dare say that. Abraham would never say, God, I'd like to trade my imputed righteousness in for my own good works. Abraham would never say that. David would never even say, hey, God, did you see what I did to that giant? Well, number one, David, if God would answer back, you did nothing to the giant. I took the giant down. And don't get on, off on the thing of why do you have five stones. Just look at it from who took the giant down. When David declared the battle is the Lord's, what was he saying? <laughs> He's saying what every one of us needs to believe about God. It is God's. All the battle is God's. We're willing to give God the glory in everything in our Christian life when he does something good, when he blesses us innumerably, but when it comes to giving God all the glory for our salvation, suddenly we throw the brakes on and we put our, we put our heels in the sand and say, I just can't deal with that. What does the scripture say? <laughs> you have no room to argue with it because we're coming to the place where Paul says, listen, here's what the Bible says. It says, it's, not, it's him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justified the ungodly. Why do the elect believe God? Why do they believe God justifies the ungodly? Well, that's, what, that's the whole uh, emphasis of Romans 5. Paul writes those familiar words, For when we were yet without strength, 
In due time, Christ died for whom? The ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God, there's another one of those grand theological words, but God did what? Commendeth, demonstrated his love toward us. By the way, that's particular in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, verse 9, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, whom we have now received the atonement. Abraham, in his unregenerate state, was ungodly. Okay? His faith, not the acts, not the works of his faith, but the object of Abraham's faith was Christ. It was the promise. It was it, Christ's righteousness was imputed to him based upon belief. Works mean nothing. Even your best works are full of sin. Folks, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to point anything back at myself, but the best message I could ever preach is full of sin. Now, I, I know that's going to strike. It's going to strike you, and I hope it does. It's still full of sin because standing behind all of this is a man who is still sinning. I don't know why God called me to do this. I've told you, folks, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't, some days I say, Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this. The reality is, is it's not, God's not asking me to be the perfect righteousness. Somehow in the whole program of God, where in the world did God think this up, that he would take fallen creatures put them in front of other fallen creatures, tell these other fallen creatures how unworthy they are, and think that that was going to accomplish any good results because he says his word will not return void. You can put a sinner, the chief of sinners, in front of the grandest amount of people and God will still bring his children home through that. Now that preacher should be living a life that's clean. He should be living a life that he desires to be holy and pure. But understand something. God has never nor will ever rely on man's flesh to accomplish anything. He wasn't relying on Abraham. By the way, he didn't rely on Moses either. It wasn't Moses' strength. It wasn't Moses' ability to speak. We know that's the case, right? It wasn't about Moses. It was about God. So even our best works produce nothing more than sinful works. The man who does not rest in his works at all, that's the man Paul's talking about. It says his faith, verse number five, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And you say, preacher, there it is. It says his faith. Where did his faith come from? That word counted to impute, to reckon to the account of, it's a wonderful thing to think and to consider 
that faith, this result of faith, is imputed righteousness. When we stop and we think today about justification by works, and we think about the fallacy of thinking that justification by works would mean God gives us the wages due for something we've accomplished, whereas on the very opposite of that, justification by faith shows us God showing kindness and mercy and forbearance to the undeserving. Now you tell me, what's going to bring more glory to the man? Justification by works, justification by faith. Justification by works can bring more glory to the man, but God doesn't accept it. What does he accept? Faith, that's by belief. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your sin and believe the gospel. You say, Who's that? who is that directed at? Whoever needs to repent and believe the gospel. You say, well, this is our Sunday crowd. Everybody here has repented and believed the gospel. I don't know that. And, you, and if your answer is, well, I did this when I was 12. I didn't ask you what you did. I'm not asking what you do now. You believe. It's an amazing thought that Christ would even have anything to do with us. <laughs> Faith is not merit. It's not based upon anything. It is simply this instrument which God's righteousness is imputed or credited. It's counted to who? The ungodly, the sinner. Paul has proved over and over and over again through chapter 3 and even into chapter 4, and he's going to give us the example of David next week. Paul again proves that the blessing of salvation come to men through faith, not through their own efforts. Folks, this is a simple gift of God's grace. It's, it's as simple as that. Abraham believed the gospel. You say, how could he believe something that had not been given yet? Folks, the gospel, there's always, there's always only been one gospel. And I told you folks this two or three months ago. There's a thing spreading, and it's spreading like wildfire across this country, that there are three gospels. And it's spreading fast. It's spreading fast. Abraham believed the same gospel. He didn't have the same view of it, but he believed the same gospel. He believed in the promises of God. It's an amazing thing. There's, only, there's always only been one way of salvation for any sinner since the fall of man in the garden. There's always only been one way. And it's only in Christ is their acceptance with God. Only in Christ. I told you at the end of the service this morning, you can have God and not be in Christ. You can have a form of godliness and not be in Christ. Only in Christ. We've got to trust in the one seed, the one Savior, Christ. Many are Abraham's literal seed. Thousands, millions of people are Abraham's literal seed. But there are millions and millions and millions from every nation, from every tongue, from every walk who are of Abraham's spiritual seed. You and I are not Jews today. We are, we are, a spiritual, we are the spiritual offspring of Abraham. When we think about these things and we think about our own salvation, our own righteousness today, I hope we can consider the imputed righteousness. Now, again, this is just part one because next, next week we'll go a little bit further with David and see how that even is, is demonstrated there. It's a little bit different. There's a little bit more to this, the way that he approaches it with David. And we're going to look at, at one of the, the great confessions in the book, of, in the Bible from David. So I hope you'll be ready for that. So let's go ahead and stand if you would.